Now, I have to say, uh, this is not only, as many of you know, this is not only Holy Week and kind of the Easter season, but it's also March Madness. I don't know how many of you have been following college basketball. Uh, thank you. Yes. Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a basketball fan. You know this. And so I've been watching some of these games and having a fun time watching that. I just love seeing these upsets happen. Have you, have you seen some of these lower teams that aren't expected to do anything, and they come in and just beat these better teams? And, and really what the, the beauty of it is, because these, these really good teams can have these superstars on them that everybody knows they're just nationally rated and highly ranked and, uh, and can just, you know, everybody knows who they are, but they can get beat by this team of kind of nobodies. Nobody really knew who they were, but they came together and perhaps played as a team in such a way that they're able to just, just kind of shock the world, in a sense, and, and beat these, these higher-ranked teams. Well, I think one of my joys of being of, uh, in basketball is this whole idea of team. And uh, it's been something that has just been a part of who I am, I think, since my earliest days. I think that's kind of how God wired me, in a sense, just to enjoy being a part of, of a team. And as I shared this week a little bit in the, uh, in the wave, what a, what a joy and a privilege it has been for me over these last few weeks to, to have uh, Rolf and Becky uh, be able to preach and today to invite um, uh, Danny, Elaidi, to come and, and bring the word to us. And so it's, uh, it's fun to, to watch the team as God has equipped us and brought us together in, uh, in sharing God's word. So, Danny, just want to invite you. Where are you? Come on down here. If you are a trustee or a steward, I always mix those two up, the people who take care of this building... How about a big pulpit where I can lay out my stuff? (laughs) You know, thanks, James. Um, I did not know if I had to get excited when he was talking about a group of nobodies that was actually able to upset the other team. But but the good good thing is, and I think it, it is interesting, because sometimes we can get into this idea, even in the Christian world, that we're somehow competing with each other. That pastor is better than that pastor. That group leader is better than that. Oh, if I could only be like him, then we would be off to a good start. And the reason is, the, the, the reality is that we're all one team. We are all on God's team. We're all serving the same Lord. We're all saved by the same Jesus. We're all being in, filled up with the same Holy Spirit. Can you not hear me, Ruth? All right. I'll bring this a little closer. All right. Good. So, for these um, last, this is week six, for the last five weeks, we have been looking at the process of, um, of salvation. We have been asking ourselves the question, what is going on when we are being saved? Is it just a process? Is it just a one-time deal? How is it made up? And James and Becky and uh, Rolf have really been teaching us and showing us that under the umbrella of salvation, a lot is going on. We've talked about justification. That was our first, our first Sunday. And then we talked about uh, regeneration. And we talked about adoption. 
and we talked about redemption. We talked about reconciliation, and today I will be talking about sanctification, which makes it this a somewhat of a daunting thing for me to do, because not only am I closing out the series, I'm also getting to talk about the core doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene, which is sanctification. Many of you guys are familiar with that. And then last but not least, even Palm Sunday. So it's a very special time, time of the year. Palm Sunday is a good reminder for all of us to know how quickly you can fall from greatness to really the cross. So, um, you know, in a sense, in, in, in spirit of, 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 of humility, I want to take you guys through this whole process and wrap things up. But I can revisit all these theological terms. I can go back and explain you a little bit what justification is and what regeneration is. But I thought of a better way to do this. So I put up a little quiz for you guys to actually see if you've been paying attention. Now, I realize that a quiz normally is really, it hinges on two people. It hinges if you guys paid attention, and that's all of you, but it also depends if the teacher actually did a good job. So now I'm very comfortable in giving you this test because I didn't do any of the teaching. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robin, if you can, uh, and, and, and you know, you can do this by yourself. You can jot this down. Um, and if you want to, and you ace all of this at the end of the service, there will be an honorary PhD in theology from Coast Community Church of the Nazarene available for you. We will sign off on it. But we can also do this as a group. Um, for you who have not been here for six weeks in a row, don't be intimidated by this. It's just a way to have, uh, have fun. We won't, for you who are a member, we won't revoke your membership if you don't score 80% or more on this. But here they are. Here are the, the things that we've been talking about. And I just wanted to, I want to give you a little bit of time to take a look at this and see if you can, if you can fill out some of those. And then we'll just go uh, look at this uh, together. Right. Let's do it together. I think that will be more fun. <laughs> All right. I'm going to whip out my answers. That's the good thing about being the teacher. You already have the answer. So, because I was actually making one mistake when I was doing it myself. I was like, no, 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 that's not right. <laughs> okay. Who is, who is brave and daring? A of one. Justification matches up with which one? D. Very good. Forgiveness. B, regeneration matches up with? To be given a part of life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, are you sure? All right, great. How about adoption? C, how about uh, reconciliation? E. D, there you go. How about redemption? A. Sanctification? B. Okay, I'm done. You can go home now <laughs> because we haven't even talked about this one yet. I actually have a second part to the quiz, and that's maybe a little bit more serious. Maybe, Robin, you can, you can uh, put this one out too. This is obviously serious stuff as well. But, but take a moment to think about these questions. Who initiated or made this possible? Justification? Regeneration, adoption, reconciliation, redemption, and sanctification. Was that man or was that God? Who 
made this possible. I see somebody already with the right answer. I see Michelle in the back, God, 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 God. And that is absolutely true. Sometimes, Ralph made a really good point last week, and he told us that sometimes we feel that we are coming on our terms to God, and we check out the bargain, and we check out what he offers us, what it will cost us, and we think that we make the decision. And the tr truth cannot be further from that. God is at work in all of this. He is the one who makes justification all the way to sanctification possible. He is the one who pulls and who pushes and who molds and who shapes and brings us in. And I will talk from that perspective today about sanctification as well. Now, before I start, I want to let you know that I will use the term sanctification and holiness interchangeably. And they are closely related. There is a little bit of a difference. One speaks more to a process or a progression, and the other speaks a little bit more, holiness speaks a little bit more to a state, but they are fairly closely related. However, since some of you guys just obtained your PhD in theology, I wanted to make clear that I'm actually aware of the fact that there is a little bit of difference. But for the sake of my message, or to what I'm speaking to today, they are very similar, hence the fact that I will use them interchangeably. Be holy as I am holy. You and I, be holy as I, God, am holy. Now, this is one of the most well-known, but if you're really honest about it, probably one of the most terrifying commandments in all of the Bible. And if this is not enough, you find yourself here today in a church that is the offspring of the holiness movement who swept through the late 1800s to this country and is actually made up, and the Church of the Nazarene actually believes that God was not kidding when he gave us this commandment. Now, before you start looking around to find those people who are actually holy and don't just believe in holiness, I think it's a good time for us to take a step back and actually talk about what holiness means. Now, in the Old Testament, people were thinking in terms of clean and unclean. You might have heard about this. And there was a direct relationship between that was holy, that what, which was holy, and which was clean. Something that was unclean could never be holy. And something that was clean could be consecrated and become holy. But that what was holy was never unclean. Now, this related to people and to objects, but for the sake of the message today, I want to talk about how that relates to people. Now, being unclean really influenced the access that people had to God. For example, if a priest was unclean or he had become unclean, he was unable to participate in worship and do his priestly duties. So being unclean restricts fellowship with God and it restricts fellowship with men. That was the natural consequence of the declaration of being unclean. Now, if someone that was clean touched something or someone that was unclean, what would happen? He would become unclean. 
This was the case for everybody, all the way up to the high priest. He was getting defiled when this would take place. And the only thing he could do was going either to a purification ritual, or he had to wait it out, or he had to bring offerings. But things had to happen in order for him to gain his state of cleanness back. Now, to show you, give you a little bit of an example of how all-consuming this can get, I brought you, uh, I wanted to read a little part out of a book called A Year of Living Bi Biblically. I don't know, have any of you read this book before? It's written by a guy who is Jewish in heritage, not a, not a believer, he's Jewish in heritage, and he sets out to live a year fully by all the laws of the Bible. I mean, all the ones that we make fun of too. So you can see, he started out like this, this normal guy, and by the end he had his beard and his staff and, and, and everything else. <laughs> and it's actually, it's a really funny book. It gives you a, a great idea of, of what, what's going on and what, what it means. But he sets out, he's a writer, so he's obviously writing this book about this. His wife is not really into this. So she, when she gets, get, has the ability to sabotage his project, she, she, uh, she does so. And here we find ourselves, um, he just read this in Leviticus 20. He says, everything upon which she lies during her impurity, that's the menstrual the cycle of women, um, shall be impure, unclean, and everything too upon which she sits shall be unclean. In other words, you should not lie on a bed where a menstruating woman has lain, and you cannot sit on a chair where she sat. Now he goes on and he says, it's a rule that no one follows to the letter anymore, but, begin but again, I want the ultimate ancient Israelite experience. <laughs> and it cannot hurt to be pure, right? As for lying on unclean beds, I'm off the hook. Julie and I don't share a bed. Apparently, I, when I sleep, I trash around like a beached marlin. So Julie has opted for two twin beds pushed together. A disturbing echo of my parents and early 60 sitcoms. <laughs> there is no sitting on, the no sitting on impure seats presents more of a challenge. I came home this afternoon and I was about to plop down on my official seat, the gray pledged armchair in our living room. Wouldn't do that said Julie. <laughs> Why? It's unclean. I sat on it. She doesn't even look up from her T-vote episode of Lost. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Point taken. She still doesn't appreciate this impurity loss. So I move on to another chair, the black plastic one. Sat in that one too, said Julie. <laughs> and the one in the kitchen. And the one in the dining room, pretty much in every one available. And the couch in the office. Now, in preparation for my homecoming, she sat in every chair that we had in the apartments, which I found annoying, but also impressive. <laughs> so finally, I settled on Jasper, and that's their four-year-old son, on Jasper's six-inch high wooden bench, which she had overlooked, where I tap out my emails on my power book with my knees up to my chin. <laughs> but then did. Now it gets really interesting. So the next day I do a web search and I find a $30 solution to the chair problem, the handy seat. 
It's an aluminum cane that unfolds in a three-legged miniature chair. It is marketed to the elderly as well as individuals who suffer from asthma, arthritis, and a whole list of other things. And he says, my handy seat arrived a few days later, and man, do I adore it. I've been started to bring it everywhere. First of all, it's a cane with sorts of like, which is for sort of like a staff, which feels really biblical to me. <laughs> Plus, if you think about it, every subway seat, every bus seat, every restaurant seat, and almost cert is almost certainly impure. The handy seat is the foolproof solution. It is my little island of cleanness, and there is something safe and comforting about that. Now, actually, we laugh about it because it's, it sounds pretty ridiculous. And, 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 and the Bible kind of picks up on this as well, because as we are moving from the law or from the Pentateuch into the time of the kings and the prophets, you find a change taking place. And all of a sudden, cleanness becomes something of the heart rather than something material exterior. King David, in one of his most famous Psalms, 51, he wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Now, Jesus continues this paradigm shift all the way into the New Testament. And for today's text, I uh, want to draw your attention to Mark chapter uh, 7. It will be on the screen as well. And if you would be so kind to uh, stand up as we read the word of the Lord, and I will, at the end, I will say the word of the Lord, and you may reply, thanks be to God, back to me. Now the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they, came from, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, so as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders in a instead of eating their food with unclean hands. And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of man. And I will pick up in verse 14. And again, Jesus called to the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within of a man's heart comes evil thought, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, 
malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The word of the Lord. Now Jesus points out three things in this passage. The first thing that he points out is that he says it's not about what you say or what you do. And to illustrate this, he comes right back at them with, 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 the, prophet, with the words of the prophet Isaiah. So he's basically saying you can say all the right things. You can have the most eloquent prayers in the world. You might be able to quote scripture, scripture back and forth and in between. But if your heart is not in it, then your worship will be in vain. Now, the one thing that I always want to say about the Pharisees is please don't think about they were so bad. They were so, they just didn't get it. Because I can tell you, and maybe not everybody's like me, but I am a Pharisee by default. This is easy for me. I understand keeping rules. I understand, I, I admire these, these things that they do. The Pharisees were able to quote the Bible backward and forth. I mean, they had eloquent prayers. They knew how to do the things, and yet Jesus tells them, you're worshiping in vain because your heart is not in it. The second thing that Jesus points out is that human rules never, ever, ever trump God's revelation. It is not about the length of your skirt or the movies that you should watch and cannot watch. It is not about which activities in this church you participate in and which you don't. No matter how lofty man-made rules sound or no matter how well thought out they are, this is just what they are, man-made rules. And the last thing, and that's maybe the most important part of this passage, is that he says it is the inside that matters, not the outside. It's the inside that matters, not the outside. Now, we, we all know this, right? I mean, this is something that every parent teaches their kids, especially those parents who have kids that are at the dating age right now. But Dad, he looks so cute. We know that it is about purity of character, about intentions. If you're dating, let me tell you this. It's not just about looks. The Bible gives you very clear applications as to what to look for in a godly man or in a godly woman. Please take that, take that seriously. But we are living in such a superficial world nowadays that a lot of us come to church every week and we are part of a small group and we volunteer a couple hours here and there, and we might even skip a few meals on every first Wednesday of the month. But in the meantime, we're ignoring the state of our hearts. And it's our hearts that breed forward sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, malice, deceit, lewdness, and so on. When Josefina and I were part of Redeemer, a church that we started, uh, that we co-started in uh, Carpatria, we had the ability to baptize a man that was well in his 60s. And this man grew up in the church, and he told us that every Sunday, 
and every Wednesday, and I think every Thursday, his dad would take them to church. And every Sunday after they came home from church, his dad would start drinking. And often the drinking would result in violence, of which he and his mom and his little brother were the main recipients. His dad was more concerned about keeping up the good Christian impression in church than he was about taking care and loving his family. And as a result of this, it took this man almost 60 years to find his way back in the loving arms of Jesus. Now, Jesus does not only affirm that cleanness and holiness come from the inside rather than adhering to rules or avoiding contact with unclean objects or people or from products that end up in the stomachs. He does not only affirm that, he blatantly violates the cleanliness not laws. Jesus touched unclean people like lepers and bleeding women and even dead people without becoming unclean himself. Now that's interesting, right? Because the high priest in a situation like this would become unclean. And Jesus did not become unclean. Not only did he not become clean, what happened to the people? They became clean. Now this is something that Jesus still does. He still initiates contact with people who are unclean in an effort to clean them up. Or to make us holy or to sanctify us, whatever the term is that you want to attach to this process. You see, this is the new covenant. And it is more powerful than the dirty world around us. Now, there's one thing I want to make very clear to you that Jesus was not able to put this off because he was the son of God. Because that's easy to think, right? Oh, Jesus could do these things, unlike the high priest, because he was the son of God. But Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2, that Jesus, who was being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus voluntarily let go of his godliness as he became incarnate. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You see, rather, it was the Holy Spirit that had descended upon Jesus, upon his baptism, by John the Baptist, that made Jesus holy. Now, Neil Cole, in his book, The Organic Church, takes us to the book of Acts, chapter 10 and chapter 11. And they're very interesting. This is the time when the gospel officially crosses over from the Jews to the Gentiles. It starts with a man named Cornelius. He is an officer in the army of the Romans, and he gets a vision from God. And he said, send out some servants and get Peter and tell Peter, Peter the apostle, and tell him to come over here. Peter, on the other side, is at that moment in Caesarea Philippi, which is another town at the ocean, and he is staying 
with Simon the Tanner. And as he is staying there, it's around lunchtime, he's getting hungry. And what does he do? He goes up on the roof and starts to pray. As Peter is praying, something happens. A sheet, like a bed sheet, hold, held by four corners, is being lowered to Peter. And the sheet is full with unclean animals, reptiles, birds of prey. There's a whole list of unclean animals that are in the bed sheet. And then Peter hears a voice. And the voice says, Peter, go ahead and eat. And Peter responds, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And then the voice responds. And he says, what God has cleansed, don't consider unclean anymore. What God has cleansed, don't consider unclean anymore. Now this goes on for three times, just to make sure that it is really God who is speaking to Peter. So in this encounter, we have a devout Jewish man, because as many of you guys know, the during the first years of Christianity, the, they were looked upon and they were st keeping still all the laws of the Jews. So you have a devout Jewish man. You have God. You have some Old Testament laws and a bunch of unclean animals. And something profound happens here. But what is it? Are the Old Testament laws all of a sudden no longer any good? Did God change his mind about unclean animals? Or did he grab them and bring them over to one of Darren's car washes and ran them all through? No, the one who changed here, who was changed, was Peter. It was Peter who had changed, not the Old Testament, not the old laws, not the animals. But it was Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and Peter's justification, regeneration, adoption, reconciliation, redemption, and sanctification, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that had altered Peter forever. And his life was no longer affected by the touching clean or unclean things. It was no longer affected by the things that surrounded him because his holiness was no longer subject to what that which surrounded him. He was so changed from the inside out that he could become an agent of change to those around him, the Gentiles included. Now, since we, as saved people, are all the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit, this is as much a reality for you and for me as it was for Peter. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit make us holy. We are being set aside for God. And theologians... And for you who just got your PhD, you already know this. We call this positional holiness or positional sanctification. Now, I realize that most of you have a hard time with this concept of being holy. Since our life experiences don't really do 
seem to reflect this truth, correct? But you know what, and I want you to hear this clearly, it is true anyway. You see, from God's point of view, we are already redeemed and cleansed and esteemed. Now, from your spouse's point of view, or from some of your co-workers' point of view, that might not be the case. But you see, this is one of our problems, is that we do not respect God's point of view as being more true and real than the point of view that we have of ourselves. Now, this is, let me warn you, this is not only the case with holiness. That's the good side. It's also on our sinfulness. We tend not to look at our sinful nature in the same way as God looks at it. You see, the Corinthian church, Paul writes to them, and the Corinthian church struggled with all kinds of evil. Gross, gross sexual immorality. Divisions, pride. And yet, Paul addresses them as saints, which literally means holy ones. Now, I realize that there is a struggle in seeing this reality of our position in Christ actualized in our lives. I realize that. We are holy, and we are becoming holy. For the people who have taken James's class on getting to know Coast Community Church of the Nazarene, we are positionally sanctified, and we are on the way of progressive sanctification. It is very similar to the kingdom of God that is here, but has not met its full revelation yet until Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. Theologians talk about this in terms as of now and not yet. Holiness is already ours, and we are learning to become at home in it as we are maturing in Christ. That is the process of sanctification. Paul explains this to the Philippians in the following way. If you have your Bible, you can uh, go over to Philippians chapter 3. It will be on the screen as well. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul writes this. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all thing, things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and, by, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So Paul realizes it. His, his righteousness, his sanctification does not come from keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain the resurrection, to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is obviously not talking about mediocre Christianity here. Paul is saying, I am all in. I, I want to suffer with God. I want to be resurrected with God. I, I am all in. And then here, the Apostle Paul, the great example for all of us, says, goes on in verse 12, and he says, not, 
that I have already obtained all of this. I want it, but I'm not there yet. Or have already been made perfect. So he once again, being made perfect, he clearly shows that it is a process being invoked on him. It's not something he do, does on his own. It's something that God is doing to him. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider, my, uh, consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God had called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if one on some point of, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Now let's read this last sentence together because this is a really important one. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Do you hear what he just said? Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, in hearing God's call to holiness, please do not be intimidated by it. Don't think that this is just something for an elect few or altogether impossible. But rather delight in the fact that if you are a believer, you are already holy in the eyes of the Lord. And on the spiritual road that we're all traveling, and many of us traveling together, our highest calling is to live up to what we have already attained. To accept what we have already been given. Now, growing up, I had a couple of kids in my swimming team. And they were adopted because this family had taken on as the mission in their lives to take care and adopt those kids who were not very likely candidates for the adoption process. So the people that they had in their house were survivors of war, people with diseases like polio and things like that, malnourished, severe trauma. I mean, they had six kids, I think, that were constantly going to doctors and psychologists because they they had a lot going on. These people were, these kids were not likely to be adopted. So this family had taken them in, and one of these kids, Hans, or that was the name that they had given him, was about my age, and he was in the same swimming team as I was, and he told me at one point, he said, I don't really feel like I belong to this family. I have a feeling that I don't really fit in. Because he was trying, he said, to make his parents proud by being good in school. But when Dutch is not your first language and when you're out almost half of the time because you have to go to operations, it is pretty hard to be in the top of the academically in a class. And obviously, since he had one leg completely amputated and the other leg partially amputated, he was also never going to be a star athlete. And because of that, he felt like he was just not the same as the real children of this couple. 
You see, he had set a bar from himself for himself, and because of that, he felt like a, a, a second-class child in the family. And it was not until the parents took the certificate or the signed document by the judge and told him that this was not just a document, but this was the way that they felt about him, that they loved him because of who he was, their son, disabilities and all included, that they loved him not because he was an exceptional student or a star athlete, and that the best thing that he could do for them was just to rest in that fact, to accept it and love them back with all he had. Now the truth of the matter is that many of us feel this way about our heavenly parent. And we feel we have to earn God's favor. And if we do this, if we participate in all these activities in church, and if we say the right things, and if we do all these things, then all of a sudden God somehow is going to like us better and be astonished by the things that we accomplish for him. You see, this living up to what we have already attained does not come by means of staying away from clean or unclean objects. It is not the lack of violations of man-made rules that deem a person holy. Let me tell you this, and this might be heresy in the Church of the Nazarene, but it is not even the absence of sin or the presence of good deeds that makes somebody holy. Rather, it is a purity of heart, Matthew 5, 8. An earnest thirsting for God, Psalm 63. A deep, deep love for God, Matthew 22, 36 to 40. And being filled up with the Holy Spirit at the expense of ourself, John 3, 30. And for those of you who participated in the small groups, it's about being a follower rather than a fan. Now, let, you, let me warn you, and sometimes, especially in, in the Church of the Nazarene or holiness denominations, we can get carried away a little bit about this. Let me tell you that sanctification is not the goal in and of itself. Sanctification is not the goal in and of itself. Rather, it is the byproduct of a life lived in total submission to God. Because John the Baptist said about his ministry, I must decrease so that he can increase. You see, if you want to grow sweet, juicy apples, you don't focus on the fruit. You focus on the tree. The proper watering, the, prop, the right amount of fertilizer, pruning in the right way. All of these activities are things you do for the sake of the tree. And that, in result, leads to a bumper crop of sweet, juicy apples. You see, in the same way, we should not focus on a byproduct of living in the spirit, but on actually living our lives in submission and obedience to God. You see, God has already made us holy. And the Spirit will enable us 
to live up to what we have already attained. The Spirit will help us to claim that what we have already been given. Now, God has called this us. I don't know if you're as stunned by this as me, but God has called us his ambassadors. So if we are to represent God in the world, don't you think that we should display some of his qualities? Is it possible to represent a holy God without being sanctified? Is it possible to represent a loving God without loving those around us? You see, one of the main reasons, I think, that God works so hard on our sanctification, and once again, let me repeat it, why God works so hard on our sanctification, not why we work so hard on our sanctification, but why God works so hard on our sanctification, is that we, he wants us to be a reflection of him in this world. You see, God wants to sanctify you. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. And Paul encouraged the Thessalonian church to stay out of the way of God, to not bring up roadblocks by means of sin and things that they were doing, but let the God of peace sanctify them through and through. So this morning, as we are wrapping up this series on salvation, which is, most, which is arguably the most important thing we can talk about, We think it's a disservice to you if we don't give you the option to respond. You see, many of you are familiar with the drawings that we see a lot in those tracts that explain to you how God works and sin and the forgiveness and stuff like that. I actually put them on the screen, Robin, if you can put them on the screen. This is the one, and we cannot bridge the gap to God because there is this gap in between the gap that has been that was caused by the fall of man in the garden of eden and that is still there as we live our sinful lives and then the second one we see that through jesus and the cross all of a sudden this cap is bridged i want to draw your attention back to the second part of the questions that i asked you and i would argue that this is a wrong picture of what's actually happening Because when we, by God's grace, and with a big word, we call this provenient grace in the Church of the Nazarene, it's the grace that already moves you and stirs you before you even accept Jesus Christ. But when by His grace you believe in Jesus, His death on the cross as an atonement for your sin, and you believe in His resurrection, God will cross over to your side, not the other way around. Let me make this clear to you. Jesus did not die so that you, because you and I wanted a relationship with God. Jesus died so that God could have a relationship with us. He first loved us. And we, when we accept this terrible, terrible sacrifice by which God bought us back redemption, he will, forgi- he will forgive us 
of our sins. Justification. So that we, who were originally the objects of his wrath, now become the objects of his affection. Reconciliation. He will make us a new creation. Regeneration. And he will welcome you into his family as his beloved son and daughter. Adoption. And then he will not leave you there, but he will shape you more and more into the likeness of his son. Sanctification. So if you have never repented from your sins and accepted Jesus, his sacrifice today just might be the day. You see, God will cross over and meet you right where you are. You know, we will take a moment in a little bit. The worship team will come up. And maybe this is something that you need to settle with God. And we want to give you some time to do that in the quietness of where you are. But if you want to come forward and kneel at the altar and literally offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God in a very symbolic way, don't be shy about it. This is not about what other people think. This is about you and God. And some of you, and we heard some testimony to that as we were talking about the small group book, some of you have already accepted Jesus' gift a long time ago. But somehow you still feel guilty about your sins and you feel like you're not really fully accepted in the family of God. You see, the promise of new life has really not worked out the way that you had hoped for. And you feel anything but holy right now. God has made a tremendous, a tremendous deposit in our spiritual bank account. And he wants us to keep withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing. You see, many of us live our Christian life not even knowing that God has done this for us. We don't even know. We live in spiritual poverty because we don't realize the tremendous deposit of grace that God has put in our bank account. Please let his grace not sit idle. Let's pray. Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will and rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things and let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours.